Well, good morning. Hope you guys are doing well this morning. Um, hope you're enjoying the kind of like teaser fall weather that we have. Hello. I saw the 60s. Come on. <laughs> yes, Lord. I love it. Anybody love the fall in here? Anybody just love the fall? Awesome. <laughs> Anybody love the winter? No hands. Go. Yeah, I saw some people like, I ain't going to be like loud or nothing. Oh, man. So good. Listen, um, last night <laughs> we had our um, Search the City scavenger hunt. And <laughs> let me just tell you, um, I was praying hard that the rain would stop, but it just kept on drizzling all day, and uh, it didn't stop. But let me tell you something. Uh, we had a phenomenal time last night uh, running around downtown. I heard Stephen Buckley was just sprinting down Elm Street, yelling crazy things out loud. Um, <laughs> and it was a blast. We had a fantastic time. So if you weren't there, you missed out. But teams were soaking wet. I mean, it was crazy. Um, but man, people are competitive too. You know that? I saw some people like come out of their shell. I'm like, brother, where have you been? <laughs> like, what happened? It's crazy. Let's jump into the Bible. All right. <laughs> Jonah chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning, and uh, we have been diving into this Jonah teaching series over the last few weeks, uncovering this timeless tale that we have been told our entire life, and hopefully uncovering some truths that may have been masked um, because of our childhood, because we have heard this story over and over and over again. We've seen it on flannel graphs. We've seen it on veggie tales. We have seen it all over the place. But I'm praying that we are uncovering what God is saying to us here in Jonah. And today we're diving into Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. Starting in verse 1. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, 120,000 people, matter of fact. It's the size of High Point. So just imagine High Point in this time period, 700, 800 B.C., large city. It was a large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds, or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Spirit, you are welcome to move in this place. Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice. You are the great high priest who sacrificed it all so that I might could experience life and so that we all would have 
a bridge to life and life everlasting. Continue to speak this morning, God. Speak through your word this morning. Speak through me, God. Hide me behind the cross today. Move in a way that leaves us all transformed by your grace this morning. I thank you for being here with us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. You ever notice that mothers have a way with words? You ever notice that? My mother growing up um, was one of these women who was able to um, put the fear of God in you and um, didn't even have to raise her voice. You know what I'm saying? Put the fear of God in you, didn't even raise your voice. Although for my mom, it was honestly both of those, typically. Fear of God and raising her voice. That was just like a thing growing up as a kid. Um, I actually refer to my mother as uh, Southern Belle Mafia. That's just, that's just the persona she gives off, right? Just Southern Belle Mafia. Like, she just looks all put together. You know what I mean? She's got her, her get-up on, her Lily Pulitzer, like, swagging. But she will cut you. You know what I mean? Like, she will take you down. You won't even know it happened. That's just, that's just my mother. And growing up as a kid, um, my, my mom had this phrase that she used often in our home, uh, primarily with my brother, um, and that phrase, I'm kidding, um, mostly, mostly me, um, the phrase was, I've already told you once, don't make me tell you again, and if I heard that phrase come out of my mother's mouth, what it told me was, if I continue in my behavior, something very bad was going to happen, probably very inhumane, very barbaric, very savage, Cruel and unusual punishment. My mother would snatch my iPhone away from me. Or she would sometimes do other things that I can't say, you know, because the DSS might come knocking on the door. Right? (laughs) And this was just part of my childhood growing up. I had a very reverent honor for my mother. and, And this phrase was very consistent where she said, I've already told you once. Don't make me tell you again. You hear, anybody resonate? Anybody that's your mom growing up? Some of you have great mothers. I don't know. You know, my mom never disciplined me, you know, and look how you turned out, right? I'm, ki- <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, so so God, God has now spared Jonah. The fish has vomited Jonah onto dry land, spit Jonah out of the, the mouth of the fish, and, and, and Jonah lands on dry land somewhere, scholars say, in the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea. Northern part of the Mediterranean Sea, which interestingly enough would be where his hometown was. The town of, of Gath Heifer. What a great hometown. Come on, where are you from, Gath Heifer? I mean, that's awesome. You know, <laughs> okay, <laughs> their high school basketball team's amazing, Gath Heifer. Pops him out on dry land, probably around Gath Heifer. And in this, this, this passage, between chapters 2, 2 verse 10 and chapter 3 verse 1, there could potentially be a time gap. We don't know, looking at the text, I don't know how much time is between 2.10 and 3.1, but there could potentially be a time gap here. But can you imagine being Jonah, who's the prophet of a nation, the pastor of a nation, who everyone has to know that the word of the Lord came to him before, and he was sent out to go to Nineveh. Everybody's freaking out, but also anticipating him 
his return. And Jonah pops out onto dry land in his hometown, and it's a fish that spits him out, and he shows up into his hometown with just acid all over him onto the beach, and he has to walk through his hometown after what he's just gone through. Can you imagine, Jonah, what that would have been like? Can you imagine with me for a second what that would have been like for Jonah to just walk through his hometown and he was supposed to go to Nineveh and now all of a sudden a fish just whoop, pops him out and, you know, he sees like his ex-girlfriend. She's like, I knew something was up with that dude. Like I knew, I knew all along, right? Jonah pops out onto dry land. But then the word of the Lord comes to him a second time, much like my mother's words where he says, in chapter 3, verse, uh, verse, verse 3 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Except this is the Lord having mercy on Jonah. This is the, 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 the Lord showing his compassion and grace and giving Jonah a redemptive second chance. We serve a God of second chances. He gives us second chances. He's, he's in a pursuit of us in a redemptive manner. And he is giving Jonah a second chance. Matter of fact, God is bound and determined for this message to reach Nineveh and that Jonah is going to be the messenger. Bound and determined. This is how this is going to take place. It's going to reach Nineveh. Now, remember that Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, at this point in ancient history, the Assyrian Empire was probably the most powerful empire the world had yet to see. Many people, even today, still study the military tactics of the Assyrian Empire because they were just brilliant, brilliant people with a brutal military force. Nineveh had a seven-mile wall around the city. As mentioned in the text, it's um, this massive city, this great city. is the largest known city in the ancient world at this time. That paints us a picture of Nineveh. And the people in Nineveh were, this, were these ruthless, barbaric, violent, inhumane people. And the Lord has come to Jonah a second time saying, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now, the word of the Lord coming to Jonah references him as a prophet, but also references there's a specific task and job that the Lord has for him. And here in this, this first little section, there's two commands from God, two commands from God here. The first one is go to Nineveh. That's the first imperative from God. Go to Nineveh. Jonah couldn't even get to Nineveh the first time around. Couldn't even make it there. He was out in the middle of the ocean, and then this storm came upon him, and they threw him over the ship, and he gets swallowed up by fish. Like, he's on his way to Tarshish, the furthest point west in the ancient world. And, you know, he hasn't even been able to get to Nineveh yet. That's the first command. Go to Nineveh. The second imperative or command is proclaim to it the message I give you. Two imperatives for Jonah. Go to Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. The NASB says, I am going to tell you. That's what the NASB says. Proclaim to it the message I'm going to tell you. Now, Jonah, if you remember chapter 1, Jonah had been given a message before. Jonah had been given a message in chapter 1. This time, the Lord says he is going to give him a message so we can assume just by reading the text with the literary makeup 
that the Lord is going to give Jonah a new message or a message that hasn't fully been delivered to Jonah. Because if it had been the same message, the text would read that it was the message I gave you. Or, or go to Nineveh and proclaim the message I gave you. But it doesn't say that. It says, it says proclaim the message I will give to you. I will give to you. So reading this, we see that there's this new message that the Lord is going to eventually give to Jonah. Now let's read verse 3 through 4 once again. It says, Jonah obeyed the, the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Notice the three. We've seen this number already a couple times here in the book of Jonah. Jonah spends three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. Here it goes again, three times, it's, or three days it takes for him to go through the city of Nineveh. So Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah obeys the word of the Lord by going to Nineveh. He obeys the word by going to Nineveh. Which again, because this is a second go-around with the same task, it points to his obedience the first time through. His disobedience. This is pointing to his disobedience. So Jonah is, is going to Nineveh. He obeys the going to Nineveh piece, but we're missing something here. We're missing something very specific. Have you ever had someone, maybe it's a spouse, I don't know, ever had someone ask for you to go to the grocery store and pick something up? Usually, it's like milk. Someone's like, can you go to the grocery store? Or like, while you're at the grocery store, can you get some milk? And in our household, it's always milk. I don't know about yours. Nobody resonates with me. You look at me like I'm like a deer, deer in headliners. I don't know. Um, but for me, in, in, in our situation, Jordan's always like, can you go to the grocery store and get milk? I'm like, sure, honey. I'm, I'm a great husband. Why not? You know? Of course. So I'll, I'll go to the grocery store, and, and I'll notice, oh, there's a couple of things I got to get as well. There's a couple of things I got to pick up as well. And so I, I end up coming home and have all my groceries, and Jordan reminds me with a question, did you pick up the milk? And I'm like, oop. See, what had happened was, uh, I made my way to the grocery store. I, I, I got that far, but I never fully followed through with what the total ask was of my wife. And we see this reality play out here with Jonah. Jonah obeys by going, but that was only half of the command. It was only half of the command. We never see the exact message that the Lord was going to give Jonah. Jonah just shows up and simply begins to proclaim the message. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now we read this and think, okay, Jonah's finally figuring things out. Like he's finally turning himself around. And in reality, Jonah still is missing the mark. Jonah probably feels a sense of peace about this. I'm doing what the Lord asks for me. I'm in Nineveh now, Lord. And the Lord's up there like, oh, my gosh. Like, I can't send another fish, man. Like, I'm running out. I can't do this, you know? We think Jonah's spot on, but he still missed the mark. Why? Because halfway obedience isn't obedience. Halfway obedience is not obedience. 
you got to be able to follow all the way through. A half swing in baseball is not really going to do much for you. you got to be able to follow all the way through. You saw that swing? Well, that's nice, too. You see that hip action? You know? <laughs> you got to be able to follow through. And I think for a lot of us in our life, in our journey with Jesus, we're, we're kind of just halfway going through the motions. Like, we're just halfway o- obedient to the scriptures. Like, we're halfway obedient to living a generous life. We're halfway obedient to loving our neighbors. Like, we're halfway obedient to making disciples. We're halfway obedient to serving the poor. Like we're halfway obedient, yet we're still so far off from being fully obedient. It's not even funny. Halfway obedience isn't obedience. In Hebrew, this this sermon from Jonah is only a five-word message. Terrible sermon from Jonah. Five-word message in the Hebrew. Now, I know some of you are like, I really wish Spence could give us a five-word message one Sunday. But that's not today. Okay. Five-word message from Jonah. He obeys by going, but he isn't being fully obedient with his words. See, Jonah doesn't want the Ninevites to receive repentance. Jonah has a deep bitterness and gripe with the Ninevites And he knows that the Lord is gracious and he is good and he is redemptive. And he knows what will happen. He knows that the Ninevites will return to the Lord. They will turn back to the Lord. And Jonah doesn't want to have any of that. He wants to keep the Lord for himself and his Israelite people. Jonah is what we call ethnocentric. Jonah really only thinks through his own cultural lens. His own people group. That God is really only for my people group. He ain't for the Ninevites. Do you know what they've done to us? Do you know the people that they have killed and slaughtered? Like, God, I love your redemptive power in our people, but not in anybody else. Jonah doesn't have a desire to see the Ninevites actually turn to the Lord. Now, most prophets in the Old Testament, when they share a message of repentance, they usually couple that with a message of redemption. Consistently, we see that throughout the Old Testament scriptures. But here, Jonah just gives this message of repentance and never brings in the message of redemption. Redemption is a key piece to the whole gospel narrative. It's a key piece to the whole narrative of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. We constantly see the redemptive pursuit of God despite us and how we turn our backs on him constantly, day in and day out. And this redemptive pursuit is so consistent that he uses prophets in the Old Testament to communicate that. And Jonah doesn't finish the deal. Verse 5 says, the Ninevites believed God. (laughs) I love it, just jumps right in. Jonah gives this five-word Hebraic sermon and says, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Notice it said they believed God. I find that interesting. Because here in the text, the reference for Lord, for God, is Yahweh. Never once in Jonah's message does he mention Yahweh. I mean, I don't know what translation you got, but my translation says nothing about the Lord. It just says 40 more days, 40 more days and you're going to be overthrown. I see no mention of Yahweh. No mention of the Lord at all. No mention of God. 
And yet, what did the Ninevites do in response to this crazy message of Jesus? It says they believed God. What does that mean for us? That means it is not the power of persuasive words that saves and transforms life. The Holy Spirit can work in your life amidst a sermon or a teaching or even conversation. And the words aren't that powerful, but the Spirit of God underneath is. I mean, Jonah's sermon is horrible. Seriously. I mean, it's terrible. Terrible teaching here. This homiletics professor will be all out of whack. Jonah, what is this, bro? And think of, this dude's a professional preacher. This is terrible. And yet, yet, the power of God touches the lives of the Ninevites, and they believed God. I don't know about you, but have you ever been in an environment before where the aesthetics or the space or the preaching or the teaching or the conversation, it just doesn't seem to, like, fit your flesh, but your spirit is like, whoa, something about this is crazy right now. Anybody? Oh, yep. Okay, one, that's great. That's so good. I'm praying for the rest of you. Okay. It says they believed God. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, in a matter of a moment, they go from being this violent empire to a people transformed by Yahweh. In a moment, this breaks out Old Testament revival and awakening. Revival and awakening. And listen, As we seek, as a community at United City, as we seek renewal and reconciliation in this city, I want all of us bought into the reality that the power of the Spirit in us has the capacity to ignite an awakening of the citizens that call Greensboro home. Not only bought into that reality, but seeking and praying for that reality. We, as a community of people, seeking and pursuing renewal and believing that because the Spirit dwells in us, the power of God has the ability to unleash an awakening of renewal and revival in this city where people's lives are being transformed. But guess what? Revival, renewal, and awakening must start in your life before it starts in the life of the city. If you haven't encountered the Lord in a fresh way recently, you haven't experienced renewal or awakening, I pray that you do. I pray that you do. I pray that you encounter the grace of God so much so that your eyes open up in a way they haven't in a long, long time, or maybe in a way they never have before. We must seek renewal and reconciliation in this city, but we also must understand that renewal and revival and awakening must start in our lives first. And it's amazing because God is using this jacked up prophet to to spur on renewal and revival. Imagine what would happen if a people got on fire for the Lord, that we, we sought after prayer, renewal, revival, awakening, transformation. Imagine what would happen if people got fired up and passionate about the good news of the gospel, got passionate about the reality that Jesus Christ sits on the right hand of the Father and makes the enemy his footstool. What would happen if we got passionate about that? What would happen? See, we don't need to gain cultural power 
We need to gain more potency as the people of God. We have a potent message. We need to be a potent people in everyday life. These people encounter what I refer to as Old Testament revival. I love that it says all of them. All in the Hebrew means all. And it says greatest to least. Sometimes I feel like in the modern era of the church that revival and awakening typically only happen with with people who have influence and are like um, cultural icons. I mean, honestly, like we live in a culture in the church where like if you don't dress a certain way or look a certain way, like you may not even be a believer. Right. Like that's just the culture we live in. It's crazy to me. Not biblical at all, by the way. But we live in a society that when we see revival, awakening, we see these worship bands and worship ministries and teams and churches and pastors. And they all just are so attractive. They dress so well. And you're like, whoa, like, that is not me. Or maybe five years ago, but, you know, marriage did something to me. Right? But here, listen to me. We see that it's all, it's the greatest to the least in the culture, in the society that experience renewal and awakening. We won't experience revival, renewal, or awakening around us if it isn't all of us. Greatest to the least. The rich to the poor. The black, the white. The fashionable, the not fashionable, the teacher, the artist, the student, the grandmother. It's all of us that got to experience the renewal and awakening of the power of God in our life. And when that happens, we will see something take place in the city in which we live and call home. It says, then they put on sackcloths. Now, sackcloth to me sounds like a luxury streetwear brand, but it's not. Sackcloth was this outward symbol of mourning and repentance. This outward symbol of mourning and repentance. And notice, as it says, the Ninevites believed God. I ask myself the question, how do we know? How do we know the Ninevites believed God? Well, the next sentence says, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. To believe, understand this, to believe in the ancient world and all throughout the scriptures, to believe is made evident by a following action. To believe is evident that there is um, something going on much deeper beneath the surface. When we believe, it is always followed up by action. You don't just say you believe. You, You exemplify believing with action, with behavior. Write this down. Believing is something you step into that reorients your actions and behavior. Believing is something you step into that reorients your actions and behavior. It is made evident through action and response. It's based more in practice than it is in theory. Believing is based in our behavior. There is a connection. Our behavior, actions, our posture, the way we live to believing. The word believe uh, in the Hebrew is the word eman, eman, which I think is interesting. It means support or confirm or to establish. It's also where we get the English word amen, amen. 
Or if you live in the South, some people say, amen, whatever. It means let it be so. Established. Rooted. Confirmed. And I, family, in love for you and hopefully love for one another, I never want to lead you astray, affirming you believe if you don't have a life response evident from believing. I will not do you any favor justice at all as your pastor, as your friend, as your fellow disciple of Jesus. If I just affirm you believing, but yet there is no evidence of a lifestyle that points to believing in Christ Jesus as Lord. I will never affirm that if that's not the case. And I hope and pray to God for the same response for me. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I hope you know I'm trying to follow Jesus like all of us. Trying to live and love and look like Jesus. I want to be transformed by Jesus. And I want to be able to have a relationship that says, you know what, man? You told me you believe, but your life doesn't show evidence of you believing. It does us no good to affirm if we're believing, if we're simply not practicing. Now, notice it doesn't say belief. It doesn't say belief. Matter of fact, the word belief appears one time in all the scriptures. One time, belief. Belief is a noun. Believe is a verb. The word believe appears over 220 times in the scriptures. Belief once, believe 220 times. Belief is separate from the human, but believe is not. Belief is separate. There can be a set of beliefs that you are detached from, but if you believe, it is directly connected to your experience because it requires action, requires change and transformation and a way of life. And here we are seeing the actions of a repentant people. But notice it never says they repented. It never says repentance at all. You don't see the word repentance. It doesn't show up in the text. I don't care what translation you have. It doesn't say repentance. But what we do see is the behavior of repentance, the actions of repentance. And just like believing, repentance is based in our actions, not just in our words. Confession of sin is one thing, but to begin to actually walk out a whole countercultural way of living is another, and that's what repentance actually is. That's what repentance actually is. N.T. Wright says the only way repentance makes sense is if the people talking about it are doing it. You want to spend some time digging in the weeds of some deep theology, go read N.T. Wright. The only way repentance makes sense is if the people talking about it are doing it. And we see this most beautifully displayed in the image of the king's response. The king's response here in the text is where we see this image so clearly played out. See, Jonah's message has gone viral across Nineveh. People tweeting about it. It's on Instagram. It's great. People taking selfies in sackcloth, you know. It's gone viral across Nineveh, and it finally reaches the king's palace. And this king is probably the strongest military leader in the world, probably the most notable and skilled soldier in the world. And look what happens in verse 6. 
It says, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. Now, when I saw this, if I just stopped right there, all I could imagine is Jay-Z and Kanye West's album, Watch the Throne. That's all I was thinking about. The song, No Church in the Wild, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, some of y'all don't listen to hip-hop music. It's okay. Y'all like, I listen to K-Love, though. All right. (laughs) This was before I got saved and set free. Um, But... So he rose from his throne. And if you're just reading and you stop right there, you're thinking this, soul, this, this king, this soldier, this military, you know, captain, whatever, is about to just slaughter Jonah. Slaughter. Cut his head off. Behead him. That was a known thing in this ancient city of Nineveh. And yet look what happens. It says he took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This, my friends, is the movement of repentance. This is the movement of repentance. The movement of repentance is from the throne to the dust. You can write it down in your journal. It's okay. Yeah, I see them heads go down. Whoop, yes. The movement of repentance is from the throne to the dust, from the highest place and stature on earth to the lowest place and stature on earth. Not just to the ground, but to the dust that blankets the ground. And understand, he was in the palace at this time. So he didn't just drop off of his throne down to the palace floor. He probably goes out into the middle of the city of Nineveh and drops into the dust. Wow. The movement of repentance. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord forms Adam. I'm going to get Christian to come on up as we close out. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord forms Adam. And what does the Lord form Adam out of? It's a Bible question. What does the Lord form? Some of y'all are like, I kind of know it, but I'm not going to dust. Okay, in Jesus' name, let it be so. All right. <laughs> if it's not, change the text, okay? <laughs> the Lord forms Adam out of dust. Matter of fact, the word Adam in the Hebrew means man or mankind and is connected to a root word which comes from this idea of from the ground. Adam is the representation of mankind and the root word speaks to being from the ground. Repentance, my friends and family, is a movement toward our true self, not away from it. We live in a culture where everyone wants to find their true self and they end up so far away, so far away from their true self because repentance has never taken place, where repentance is a turn back to our true self. It's a return to the purest form of mankind. It's the purest form of our humanness. This king goes from sitting on the throne to sitting in the dust. This alludes to the idea of abiding. He's not just sitting on the dust. He is sitting in the dust. A throne, the throne is something you sit on, and the dust is something he is sitting in. John Mark Comer says, Repentance is not a heavy, somber religious duty, but a life-giving art, renewing the entire soul. You want to return to what it means to truly be human? Get off the throne and get into the dust. Posture of humility. The way up in the kingdom of God is down. 
it is counter to the world around us. It's counter to our education system. It's counter to corporate America. The way up in the kingdom is actually much further down into the dust. We were never meant to live out of the throne, but out of the dust. Dr. Cherith Fee Nordling says, salvation is about God wanting to give us back our lives. And a lot of us, if we're honest, we have a hopeless life. There's brokenness inside of us. We're searching after all different types of ways to self-medicate, but we're hopeless. And salvation in its purest form is God wanting to give us back our life. And I love that. N.T. Wright again says in regards to repentance, it's a serious turning away from patterns of life which deface and distort our genuine humanness. And again, we see this as a parallel with Jesus. Let's stand together. I want to read a passage in Philippians over us as a people today. about eyes closed. Just hold your hands out in front of you as just a posture of reception. This is just a symbol. Just like the sackcloth, this is a, this is a symbol. I want to read Philippians chapter 2 over you. And I want you to see the posture of our Savior Jesus Christ and how it is so uniquely tied to this metaphor. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself dust by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on We see in this passage a repentant people. But we also see the picture of a hard-hearted prophet. Two pictures, two people in this story, here in this chapter. A non-repentant, hard-hearted prophet who has all the knowledge, has all the experience, has the resume, and we have a king who's murdered probably hundreds of thousands of lives, has killed many people, has a story of brokenness. And we see a king get off his throne and go down into the dust and turn as a representation of a whole nation and repent in front of the Lord. And in verse 10, it says, When God saw what they did, Help us all to know this morning, Lord, that you see what we do. You see our actions and our behaviors, and may we process in our soul if they match up with us believing or not. 
God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. God's judgment for us, family, his, his justice nature is used as an expression of his love for us, as a way to help us turn and to repent from our way of living so that we can return to true humanness, to, to truly walk in the life that you have for us. Every person in this room today having a story. I wonder if there's someone in this space today who can see themselves in the image of this bitter, hard-hearted prophet. Or maybe you're, you're here today and you got a story that's jacked up like this king. <laughs> Brokenness like we wouldn't even believe. Stories you haven't told anyone behaviors and actions that you've only kept to yourself in a heart that is simply turned away from God. I'm calling you today to turn away and to return home. Return to the dust, to your, to your humanness. And may you bask in knowing who truly sits on the throne and his name is Jesus. Oh God, today, I thank you for each person in this space. I thank you for speaking to us this morning through your word, God. Transform our heart today, God. Turn a heart this morning, Lord. Maybe it's someone who's been doing the church thing their whole life, or they've, they've prayed a prayer, or they've been engaged in different church activities, but their heart is hard. soften our heart, God. And if you have a story that's crazy, which we all do, before Christ, we are all dead in our sin. He's calling you to return. Get off your throne and get into the dust and bask, abide in the dust of your humanity, crying out to the one who sits on the throne, who actually got up off the throne into the dust, essentially holding your hand in mine as he goes on the cross saying, I'm doing this for you. God, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace. It's in your precious and perfect and holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated.